Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast, season eight. This is the final episode, number 61. I'm your host, Ro Hattie, coming at you from Treaty 7 territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. In this episode, part two, the final part with Karen Keene. Karen is the author of Scripture, Ethics, and the Possibilities of Same-Sex Relationships, which is the key book to read on that subject, in my opinion. In this episode, we pick up where we left off. We talk a little bit about the origins and inspiration and interpretation of Scripture. How, how are we supposed to do that? This is especially important for those who grew up in evangelical traditions, traditions with a high view of Scripture. What do you do with the Bible now? Especially if you have a complicated relationship with the Bible. What now? Do you give it all up? Or do you try to find new, renewed, reclaimed ways of approaching the Bible? Karen's latest book, The Word of a Humble God, The Origins, Inspiration, and Interpretation of Scripture. Pick it up wherever books are sold. We won't address it directly, but its context is the essence of this final show. Thanks again for being here. Don't forget to rate the show and tell all your friends. Let's jump in. I'm out. I want to switch gears in some ways because we, I want to hang on to the Bible piece here. Mm-hmm. I would really like to tease out pathways for folks who have now a complex relationship. Perhaps they always have, but uh, moving away from... A, the talking head, so the authority figure, pastor, preacher, maybe theologian is the authority on scripture, um, and you just sort of soak in what they say, or the Bible is being used as the sword to bring pain and hurt onto marginalized folks, um, or the Bible is used as a way to uh, preserve power for those with power and not wielding it well. Um, I, I want to come to that place of pathways of where we can s- start to figure out a confusing or hurtful relationship with with the Bible. Mm-hmm. But before that, your book, uh, not the most uh, recent book, but your book on scripture and ethics and the possibilities of, of uh, same-sex marriage, I think, same-sex relationships. Mm-hmm. I had gone through and I wrote this story in my book about the biggest story at the start of 2020 wasn't supposed to be COVID-19. It was supposed to be about me and a bunch of ministers who left the vineyard of uh, the Vineyard Churches of Canada in protest over their their final decision, which was uh, to ban ministers from performing same gender marriages. In the process to arrive, because I was shaped and formed in what I would describe as white evangelicalism now, not in a Baptist tradition, but up here mm-hmm. in an AGC and Associated Gospel Churches and, and Alliance traditions, mm-hmm. uh, both of which are still um, non-affirming, as, mm-hmm. as are virtually all evangelicals. I read a lot about same-gendered relationships, marriage, but I found that they canceled each other out all the time. So so-and-so would write a book on being affirming and so-and-so on non-affirming, and they tended to just sort of meet somewhere in the middle in terms of how convincing they were to me. So I wanted something that was even 
more convincing in terms of its scrutiny, a different approach, a different rather than battling head to head over the interpretations of words. And your book did that. And one of the aspects that I want to center around and then call back to the Bible piece is how we can approach Scripture in the context of community. Because we have this New Testament church as our example that we're reinterpreting, in many, in many ways they're anti-Jewish, but reinterpreting a Jewish faith into this new Christian thing. And that required the community to affirm things that would appear to be certainly against religious tradition and, and sometimes a reinterpretation of Scripture. What does that look like, however, in a modern context for that large, but let's keep it small, that small church community today? What type of practices can they adopt? What does it look like to meander through Scripture together in community rather than, so flatter, rather than that top-down we're always used to where the preacher or pastor sends the tablets and interpretation down, but rather a communal approach of discovering how this liberative story that God has for all of creation can transpire within the context of local community? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. I think that um, community, the whole concept of community begins with seeing ourselves within the community that is across history, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to interpretation. So I think one of the problems with interpretation now is that we're trying to reinvent the wheel. We're trying to we, we think that we are the smartest and that it all comes down to us rather than looking at ourselves as a piece in the history that has come before us and the history that is going to come after us and that we are intergenerationally connected to this community that go that stretches back, back thousands of years and we are a part of the community that is to come so my my interpretation is going to happen in that broader sense of community so i look at the biblical authors and i i i learn from them how are they interpreting their scriptures because the bible was written over hundreds of years and so you have within scripture itself interpretation of scripture (laughs) and what how do they navigate ethics how do they navigate hermeneutics Innovation and tradition both. How do they handle that? And it's interesting how the biblical authors will often, you know, when when the, when scripture was put together, they didn't throw out the old. They put it next to the new so that you could kind of see this evolution of thought and development. It wasn't, I'm going to throw out this tradition and invent something new. There was a respect for tradition that, what ha- this community that had come before me, I'm building on their shoulders and what wisdom do they teach me, my my ancestors? And I'm going to build on that for my generation and for the generation to come. And so there was, you know, you see Exodus next to Deuteronomy you, and you have, you know, or three different slave laws that are put together mm side by side they didn't they didn't just take that all out and erase what previously came 
Um, it kind of like uh, Karl Barth's commentary to Roman, where he has, you know, three prefaces. He could have just, you know, erased the first preface. But there was something valuable, I think, in that when he came back to Roman again and again, he left those three prefaces there. And you can kind of see shifts in his thinking. I, there's this idea that that we can't change our mind, that we can't learn anything, because if we learn something, if we shift our views or position, then that means we were wrong before and therefore we're stupid. And so in order for me to salvage my sense of self-worth, I have to try to say that I would write all along and I can't give any evidence of the fact that my views have changed. I can't acknowledge that my views could change or that I could have a different perspective. Whereas I think if we see community in the stream of history, where we see generation after generation building on the previous generation, we see this valuing of tradition, while also this expectation that yes, we're going to continue to grow and to learn, and that that's a good thing, and not something to be resisted or be ashamed of or hidden, but to be embraced. And so when it comes to the local congregation here, I think that would include looking at, if we're talking about a particular issue or passage, how do the biblical authors engage? How does Christian tradition engage? But there would be other pieces like general revelation and reason um, that would become part of that as well. I come from a tradition that was sola scriptura, but really it yeah. was more nuda scriptura, which is a distortion of the Reformation theology. It was the Bible only. You could only look at the Bible for any kind of insight, and that's it. And that's not mm. the view of the uh, of the Reformers. The Reformers did value tradition. They just didn't see tradition as above scripture or equal. They saw it as part of, and they didn't denounce reason. Um, so there's a distortion in how sola scriptura is taught in churches today. I don't know where that distortion comes up in history, but a lot of us have been taught that. We don't even know what the reformers actually believed and taught. We've got this distorted understanding of scripture. I'm kind of going off in a lot of different directions here, but I, I talk about interpreting scripture and community in my new book, The Word of a Humble God, the origins, inspiration, and interpretation of scripture. And part of that looks at how it's not really so much about interpretive methods, because mm. any any interpretive method can be used for antichrist purposes and yeah, has been okay. used for antichrist purposes. Yeah. Uh, and the church has been sustained by a variety of different types of interpretation. Yeah. It, it's not the method so much as uh, the paradigm that guides it, which is Christ as the the lens through which to understand Scripture. Or as Augustine said, you know, any interpretation that you arrive at that does not result in love of God or neighbor is not correct, and you need to go back and relook. 
and reinterpret. Can we end there? Is that the simplicity of approach? Because when I consider exactly as you said, if community can come together around, and and it should, um, a collective understanding and work to interpret a particular scripture in the modern day age, like right now, a, a contemporary community, that it could wind up in a space where they're abusing scripture. Like that, that is a, that is the threat, but, but is the simple answer to that is like uh, many traditions do make the suggestion of Christ as the lens mm-hmm. or they will even conflate or confuse the word of God of Bible and Christ in many ways. But uh, is it as simple as the love for one another and the love for your neighbor. And if you don't arrive at that, then you've interpreted it wrong. I mean, that's what Augustine said, but I, I, I think that the Christ as the lens does two important things. One is it resists proof texting. Uh, it is a, hmm. it is a, it is looking at the, the thrust of scripture as a whole. What is the whole story of salvation moving us toward on a bigger level rather than proof texting. When I look at problematic uh, interpretive traditions that fueled apartheid or American uh, slavery, there's a tendency towards proof texting, uh, missing the forest for the trees. Whereas I think the lens of Christ tells us to not miss the forest for the trees, to see what the forest the big picture takes yes. us to that way we yes. don't are uh, we're not as likely to fall into treating the cultural context of the bible as inspired the particularity of the cultural context is inspired that we're looking for that bigger picture and i also think christ as lens is helpful in the main posture that i argue is is essential to interpretation and that is humility which may on the surface seem pretty simplistic, but I don't think that, I don't think people, um, I, I don't want to generalize, I shouldn't say that. I have experienced some in my tradition and, and within myself at, at uh, before I had more of a, an understanding of God's humility. I did not really understand the extent of God's humility because it was unfathomable. Mm. I come from, you know, a tradition that's all about mm. God's power and sovereignty. Yeah. And, and I believe that God is all powerful, but God is a humble God. And if mm. we don't really understand God's humility, then we don't really know what that actually looks like. And uh, so I, I prefer the, um, you know, looking at how Jesus cooked breakfast for the soldier, uh, the, excuse me, the the um, disciple uh, after the resurrection, he didn't attack mm-hmm. the soldiers that killed mm-hmm. him. <laughs> he made He's cooking breakfast <laughs> as the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Uh, everything in heaven and earth had been placed under his feet, and he he is cooking for other people. Yeah, and I, you know, I. Uh, I was raised with, well, the women do the cooking and the men don't do that kind of 
path, you know, that <laughs> well, he was he was barbecuing, path. I guess. That's it. <laughs> barbecue, yes. Yeah, you barbecue. So humility, I think, is hmm. and that um what happened with misinterpretation of, of scripture is it's usually centered on my own self-preservation at the expense of someone else. It's um, interpreting scripture for me in a way that's beneficial to me and maybe not so beneficial to you. I, I cater the interpretation to myself and that's where scripture ends up being used in a way that's abusive towards other groups because scripture becomes a way of propping up my own self-preservation yeah, it, it it strikes me as as yeah, I I actually hadn't thought of it through that particular individualist lens. I I have often thought of it more through a collective lens that these interpretations are one. In fact, maybe the, the theology has produced it that if. Scripture is inerrant and God is unchanging. We couldn't possibly change our minds or or alter interpretations and so forth, or else the house of cards falls apart. So to circle back, are you saying then, as we connect interpretation to the rich theological and interpretive history throughout church history— not merely the early church, but throughout church history, that that can help us produce understanding for contemporary issues? I think one of the primary things that it teaches us is that it's not the method as much as the, mm-hmm. dis- the, the disposition in which we go into interpretation of Scripture. I think the fixation mm. the fixation is always around, let's get the right in- interpretive method. And history teaches us that that's not the right question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the disposition. So you can do an allegorical interpretation, a literal interpretation, a, 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 a dialectical, and you know, whatever. There's all kinds of methods that could be used for good or ill. It's how I'm approaching scripture and for what purpose. Oh, Second Timothy says that Scripture teaches me about salvation through Christ, and that it is inspired, useful for teaching. For what purpose? To equip us for every good work. Learning about salvation through Christ is kind of the milk. Baby Christians they they learn from Scripture that God's salvation. They learn about Christ. But the meat is really putting that into practice, which is being equipped for every good work. And so how does scripture propel me and inspire me to act for the good? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and am I reading scripture from, for, for some other reason? Am I, am I reading scripture so that I can win an argument, so that I can uh, prop up some demand that I want for myself so, you know, so that I can maintain apartheid, so that I can uh, maintain my desire to own slaves. What does that have to do with every doing every good work? 
But good work in a contemporary. So <laughs> there's certainly folks now that wish they could own slaves. But w- when we look at what the reader or that particular community might be thinking of what is good, it could be aspects of power preservation, which is a fancy way to say it could be about how to keep illegal immigrants out of or a particular stance on immigration. It could be a particular stance on who to vote for. And and those strike an insular community as good. So then what's the filter? You could say Jesus again. Right. I'm playing devil's advocate, of course. But, but that might produce <laughs> the pictures of white Republican voting Jesus. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the problems with the historical Jesus movement is that you can start trying to study the historical Jesus and you'll just come away with whatever Jesus the researchers' inclinations hmm. are towards, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We can definitely create Jesus in our own image, and we have. And, you know, Jesus says, you look for me in Scripture, but you don't see me. Why? Why don't you see me? Hmm. And he said, because you do not have the love of God in you. Hmm. And so what he's saying there is that in order to even be able to see what's in scripture, you have to have the love of God in you. And obviously that's a bit of a subjective thing. I don't think that's something that we can go around and say, Oh, you have the love of God and you don't, you don't. And I do. And um, good goodness and love are not defined. However, we want to define them. Um, I do think that that is, is demonstrated in scripture. Uh, I think it's demonstrated in Christian tradition. I think it's demonstrated today in certain communities that the Holy Spirit is evident in the midst of the good that is happening. Um, Scripture will always be misinterpreted. Scripture will always be used for oppressive purposes by Mm -hmm. somebody Uh, I don't think the goal is to say that we're going to always be able to eliminate that, but we can certainly counter it with a method of reading scripture that is demonstrative of the love of God being in us. It is demonstrative of loving our neighbor. It's pretty hard to make a case for the good that is about my self-preservation only when love is defined as how I treat my neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to hang on to your word around. It's not the method or it's not the hermeneutic. We use the word method. It's not the method, but the disposition we approach the text and to pull us full circle. That strikes me as, Oh, that's so good. We got to put, Put that on a T-shirt. That's a, that's a good one. It, it strikes me as decentering that intellectualization of Scripture and asking how the body, how how your body, individually, but also the body of Christ, how the community as as body approach the grand narrative of God's unfolding hope for creation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's disposition and. And that disposition leads to 
it's it, it connected to purpose. So it's mm. the difference between the love of God coming up and welling up out of me and being demonstrated outward mm-hmm. as character transformation, mm. disposition, mm. character transformation yeah. versus yeah. a here's an external pressure or a rule that is being placed upon me to try to motivate me to act in a particular mm-hmm. way. I think that's how we often approach scripture as here's this rule. I need to follow it in order to be right with God because otherwise God will be angry and, and I'm really scared of God as opposed to mm-hmm. the love of God is in me. This love that is so amazing and so expansive overflows out of me to everyone mm. and everything around me. It's so good. Karen, thank you for gracing us with your time. It was certainly a blessing to me uh, to hear your voice for the first time, to meet you for the first time, yeah. and then to to kind of uh, uh, go back and forth around these ideas of of renewing a sense of appreciation for scripture, or at least offering um, places for folks to tether themselves uh, to again. Uh, So I really feel that that's this conversation will be something that folks will, they're going to pull a nugget (laughs) from it. I, I, I hope so. And I, and I'll say this, I'll let Esau Macaulay, a New Testament scholar, have the last word. And he said that the Bible interpretation can be an exercise in hope, which I think is an encouragement mm. for people who are disillusioned with scripture. And mm. if they want to hear more of, of Dr. Macaulay speak on that, check out Reading While Black, yeah. uh, Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. That concludes Season 8. On the Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast, thanks for being here. Don't forget to rate the show. If you want a little preview of Season 9, what's in store? It'll be mental health, embodied healing, all of that. Can't wait. Until then, 